Please take your Bibles and join me again in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4 will conclude the chapter today, beginning in verse 12, reading through the end. 1 Peter 4, 12 will be our text. We have spent a good bit of time, as 1 Peter forces us to do, thinking about what it means to be a suffering Christian. Maybe you don't like talking about suffering, but I will assure you it's a whole lot better talking about it than it is experiencing it, number one. Number two, if you don't talk about it before you experience it, you don't know how to handle it when you do experience it because you've given no thought, no preparation. So it's very important that we think about it and then learn, grow, and not become easy pickings for the enemy. Before I became a pastor, I didn't realize how many people there were in the world who were disappointed with God. But now that I am a pastor, and have been for virtually my entire adult life, I realize that there's no end to people who are disappointed with God. You may be here this morning, and that is a category that you fall into. If not you, then maybe a loved one, maybe somebody you know that at one time loved God, loved the church, was uh, eager to follow Him, but today they find themselves shipwrecked on the side of the road, uh, off in a spiritual ditch, and mad. Mad because that which they wanted or that which they expected or that which they hoped never came true. Or their perfectly good and happy life was damaged, even in their minds destroyed by some measure of heartache. That is not to in any way minimize those heartaches. As we have said again and again, suffering is real and suffering hurts and it hurts 100% of the time. So we are not throwing rocks at suffering. We're not suggesting that we should treat cancer with Band-Aids or anything of the sort. Instead, we are suggesting that suffering is not to be unexpected and it is not something that somehow Christian people, because they are Christian, are insulated from. So we'd, be, we'd best be ready to think well about them. So let's read beginning in verse 12 and uh, read through the end of the chapter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, this is, uh, I think, the high water mark of the letter of 1 Peter. I think it's the high water mark for understanding suffering in general in all of the New Testament. I am partial to this paragraph. I want to suggest to you that if 1 Peter 4.19 is not a verse you've committed to memory and you're looking to start scripture memorization, there's your first challenge. 1 Peter 4.19. One of the most important verses in the entire Bible, in my judgment. I want to suggest to you that there are three things that stand out in this paragraph, and I hope they will be helpful to you as you think about them. You'll note he concluded the former paragraph with a doxology. The last word of the preceding verse, verse 11, is the word amen, meaning he's finished a thought and he's put a period on it and said amen. Now he's coming back and starting a new thought, which is really the old thought said again. By the way, that's what good preaching is. You tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. That's good preaching. So... That's what Peter's doing here in 1 Peter. He's, he told us what he's going to tell us, then he told us, and now he's going back and he told us, he's going to tell us what he told us. So here he is in verse 12 saying, it's possible to misunderstand suffering. There's the first point I want you to feel as we read this passage. It's possible to misunderstand suffering. Invariably, I talk to people all the time, perhaps you do too, who are disappointed with God. They typically explain their disappointment because they had their hearts set on some level of joy or some source of joy or some experience of joy, and that was taken away. So it might have been health, it might have been financial, uh, it might have been a relationship, it, it, it might have been any number of things. I had my heart set on X, and God gave me Y. Therefore, I'm mad. Well, I've said before, I'll say it again, you being mad at God doesn't change God. It only changes you for the worse. So he begins in verse 12 and says, don't be surprised. Now, what does that mean? It means there are people who are surprised. And he's telling them, stop that. Don't do that. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test. It's possible to misunderstand it. It's possible to think wrongly about it. It's, possibly to, it's possible to not know what's going on. Now I want to confess to you that it's easy to assume that you're the smartest person in every conversation. It's apparently easy because... Pretty much every conversation has a person who thinks they're the smartest person in the conversation. It's pretty easy, therefore, for that to translate because you're so used to being right, allegedly, that in your conversations with God, you're right there too. And you know all there is to know about being God. You know, you know everything, every data point that matters. You have perfect wisdom. You understand how this connects to that, and that connects to those, and these connect to that, and so forth. And pretty soon, you know, if, if God would have just done X, then, then these things would have happened this way, and that way, and this way, and that way. 
which of course is highly presumptuous, but that never stopped us from believing that somehow we're smart enough to counsel God. So God sends these tests or trials or hardships or difficulties or sufferings or whatever word you want to call them, and we ask ourselves, why? And we think, well, you know, God owes me an explanation. Turns out he doesn't, but he, we think he does. And then we think that somehow if we could just pout, feel sorry for ourselves, get angry, become embittered, or take our game and go home, that somehow we are going to manipulate God. God is going to look at us because we can manipulate our spouse or our children or our parents. We can manipulate our friends. We can manipulate our coworkers. We can manipulate our uh, dorm uh, roommate or somebody. You can manipulate people. Because you can manipulate people, you can manipulate God. That's what we think. Of course, that doesn't work. It's not going to work. Turns out God's really in charge of like seven and a half billion people right this very minute. And you can't even take care of the people who are immediately on your left and on your right plus you. But you're smart enough, wise enough, gifted enough to give God counsel. It's possible to be surprised by what happens in your life, how it happens. I was thinking about it this morning. You know, when you get married, you get married and you say words. You say words like, for better or worse, and everybody assumes better. Nobody's planning for worse. Have you ever noticed how worse worse can get? You know, richer or poorer, everybody expects richer. Have you ever noticed how poor poor can get? In sickness and in health, everybody's counting on health. Nobody's counting on sickness. We make these promises, and we make them as if somehow we're actually in control of whether or not these circumstances, richer or poorer, sickness, health, are actually going to come our way. Well, to some degree, we are, right? I mean, hard work, you know, diligence, perseverance, steadfastness, etc. Those things matter, and they do, 100%. They do. But at the end of the day, ultimately, we're not in charge of whether or not, I, I, I use a farming illustration, we're not in charge of planting a seed in the ground, whether the, whether the plant grows this tall, or that tall, or that tall, or taller. We're not in charge of whether it puts on a few blooms, or a lot of blooms, or a little fruit, or a lot of fruit. We're not in charge of any of that. We're just in charge of putting the seed in the ground. That's all we're in charge of. We could cultivate a little, add a little fertilizer, add a little water, you know, Etc. We can do these things, but ultimately we don't make seeds grow. We don't make plants turn into plants. We don't make plants bear seeds or fruit or anything of the sort. We don't, and we don't even do that in our own lives. A handful of you knew that I preached last Monday at the Mississippi Baptist Pastors Conference. So there's a couple hundred preachers in the room. Now you think you're a tough audience. <laughs> Some of you go home and, you know, say, I could have done better than that. But all of those guys go home and say, I could have done better than that. All of those guys. That's okay. But 
the theme for the pastor's conference was the joy of pastoring. And the pastor who put the conference together in the theme has this notion that we've all come out of COVID and a lot of pastors have been bruised by, their, by the arguing in their churches. By the way, COVID has been an enormous test. Enormous. I just need to let that sit there a minute. So these pastors have come out of COVID and their churches have banged them around and beat them up and complained because they were not this side of this argument or that side of this argument. And all they wanted to do was just love Jesus and bring the church together and have everybody get along. And nobody wanted to get along. And everybody wanted to blame the preacher. So these preachers need a little time of healing and so forth. So the theme of the conference was the joy of pastoring. And let's encourage our pastors and so forth and so on. So I preached from 2 Corinthians 3. And the, the, the end of it all is that I made a comment that, that I believe with all my heart. And it's true of every one of us, not just preachers. And that is that those of us who are Christians... And who have, let's just say hypothetically, a few years of Christianity under our belt. God probably saved you when you were pretty insignificant. You were just a child, you were just a teenager. Maybe you were in college. But there's an awful lot of runway left in front of you. So you just a you're just a pipsqueak in the grand panorama of all that God is doing in the world. And there's a little bit of you. And God opened your heart to see the beauty of Christ. He saved you from your sins. And he set you on a path of following him. And here you are today, a few years later perhaps, looking back and you say, you know, God's done some really special things. And God's done some really important things. And then God's done some other things that, that I wish he hadn't have done. God's allowed certain things, or God's permitted certain things, or God's brought to bear in my life these things, and they've been hard, or they've been painful, they've been difficult. They, they, they've been so hard. So depending on how your road has worked out, how your life has transpired, you look at those things and you say, you know, I was nothing and God set me on the path to glory. And it turns out the path to glory doesn't look like it's all like cotton candy, heavily sugared up. It turns out there's some bitterness. There, there's some hardship. There's some difficulty. There, there's some potholes on the road to glory. God took little old you from your little old world and your little old circumstance and he has set you on the road to glory. You know where you're going to end up. You know that you're getting there by God's grace on the road that he's placed you on. And it's possible that the potholes are so large or the boulders are so big or the burdens are so difficult that you misunderstand what's really going on. And you have forgotten that you're on the road to glory. Because you have this notion, wrong-headed notion, 
that the road to glory is supposed to look like, like an eight-lane boulevard where there's no speed limit and you're in a Ferrari and there's nobody else on the road except you. And it's just top down, wind in your hair, 70 degrees, no humidity, and your best girl right there. What's not to love? It's a great life. It turns out nobody's living that life, buddy. Nobody. So I told these preachers, stop whining. Nobody has had it easy. So I'll say to you, you don't have it easy. You can be disappointed all you want, but it doesn't change anything. Instead, rejoice that God took little old you and he put you on the road to glory. And the fact that the road has got some potholes in it doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean that God's not involved. Doesn't mean that God's not working this out. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have a great plan for how he wants to use your life. In fact, it simply means that you are living in a broken world and that this is a world that involves the testing of your life. It is possible to misunderstand your circumstance and to assume that your suffering is a pointer to the fact that God does not love you. And that would be a big mistake. Because he does love you. He loved you so much that even while you were a sinner and a nobody, he sent his only begotten son to die in your place. Don't you ever, ever forget that. You've been bought with a price. And God could not stop loving you any more than you could stop loving your children. Even less. The notion that somehow the presence of suffering means the absence of God is not biblical. It's not true. So don't misunderstand suffering. There's a second thing, and you have to kind of understand what's going on here to understand this point, but I hope you will because I think it's very important, and that is that we must understand the importance of purity to God. Suffering somehow connects to God's love of purity. We must understand the importance of purity. Let me show you how this works out. Verse 13, he says, Rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted, that's a way we suffer, for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Now he's, he's contrasting two Two reasons for suffering. One, verse 14, is this issue of insulted. You're insulted for the name of Christ. So you're a devoted Christian doing devoted Christian things, and you're insulted, you're hurt, you're, you're offended, you're persecuted, etc. You take a stand, and it costs you. 
All right, that's one way, one reason you suffer. Then in verse 15, there's the other reason that you suffer, which is because you've actually earned your suffering. You're a murderer. If I were to ask you, should a murderer be held accountable for murder? And you don't answer yes, sorry, I can't help you. The answer is yes, a murderer should be held accountable for murder. And, and what's a typical suffering for a murderer? Well, it's, it's suffering. It, there's no way around it. You don't murder people without experiencing a lifetime of suffering and inflict a lifetime of suffering. A, a robber, a thief, an evildoer. These should evildoers face suffering. Yes, don't do the crime unless you want to do the time, right? That kind of thinking. All that to say, those things are obvious. Just, just a freebie here, the word meddler here in the ESV, the word meddler, I, I believe the King James says busybody. Maybe the NIV says busybody. That's a strange word. Um, uh, it, it, it should not be left unattended. So let me, let me tell you something about that word. There, the New Testament is written in Greek. There is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The Septuagint does not use this word. So this is a, it's a rare word. It does not occur in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It does not. Prior to 1 Peter 4, it does not occur in the New Testament. It does not occur in the Old Testament. It does not occur in the New Testament. And this is where it gets really strange it does not occur in secular Greek literature. So Aristotle, Plato, those kind of fellows. This word is never used. It is as if Peter made it up. Now the easiest way to understand what words mean is to compare them to the same word used in a different sentence. So love. What do you mean by love? Well, you know, I heard love meant X. So I guess Love means this as a result of that. That's, that's the best way to understand what words actually mean. If you can associate it with something. If I hold up an apple and say apple, you say, well, I know what an apple is. It's that. And I know what apple sounds like because you associated it with that. Well, that word, this word is completely void of any of that. So what does he mean by this? A meddler. Well, what's interesting is it's in a list of really bad things. Murder, thievery, and evil doing. Then the fourth word is being a busybody. <laughs> now I'm guessing most of us here would say murder, thievery, and evil doing is really bad. Busybody, hey, that's just humanity. It's just the way it is, you know. I'm I'm a nosy person. I'm an I'm an inquisitive person. I just, you know, I, I just need to help people because I'm smarter than them. I just need to get involved in other people's business. Well, here's what the Bible says. Let none of you suffer for murder, thievery, and being a busybody. Because I'm telling you what, friend, if you stick your nose where it doesn't belong, you're going to get in trouble. And you're going to invite suffering in your life. And guess what? You brought it on yourself because you got where you shouldn't have gotten. You went where you shouldn't have gone. Stay out of these things. They're not your business, whatever they are. That said, he's comparing then suffering because you've been insulted for the name of Christ and suffering because you're a bad person, because you're doing bad things. So certainly, we ought not to suffer because we're doing bad things. Yet, verse 16, he transitions again. 
If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? This is the question. What does judgment have to do with suffering? What does judgment have to do with evil doing? Well, we get that. What does judgment have to do with suffering when you're insulted for the name of Christ? Well, this is where you have to lean into the Bible and you have to understand what's really going on here. Now, this phrase, judgment begins at the household of God. If you've been around church a while, you've heard preachers use that phrase. Judgment should begin at the household of God. We need to get our house straight before we worry about anything else. We need to pay attention to our needs and our burdens and our sins and our need for confession and our demands for repentance and so forth. And all of that is true. And judgment does begin at the household of God. But where's the context for that phrase? What does that mean? How does any of that have anything to do with the way actually God is working? And how does any of this impact my suffering? Well, the answer to that is to go back to Ezekiel chapter 9. If there is a book of the Bible that is, for the most part, ignored by contemporary Christians, it's either going to be one of the 12 minor prophets. I'm pretty sure... Most people are ignoring Nahum and Obadiah. And I'm also pretty sure that most people are ignoring Ezekiel. And the reason for that is because Ezekiel is all kinds of literature sort of mishmashed together. Ezekiel is different. It's not linear. It's not like the history. It's not like 1 Kings where you go from King A to King B to King C king d and so forth it's difficult to read ezekiel and say well i i I can't follow the bouncing ball here but here's the here's the the thumbnail of ezekiel what's going on here ezekiel is a prophet ezekiel is taken in the babylonian captivity so think daniel shadrach meshach and abednego they're taken over to babylon and god uses ezekiel and he has a number of visions or dreams And he uses Ezekiel to explain to his people who are over in Babylon, why? Why has this happened? We were God's people. We were going to the temple. Remember, this is Solomon's temple. The walls are covered in gold and all the furniture is covered in gold. And and the the Ark of the Covenant is solid gold. And on and on. We had the people of God, the place of God. We had the presence of God. And why has God allowed this pagan folks over here in Babylon to come in and tear up our people, destroy us, and take us into captivity. Why has God blown up our nation? Now bring that down to life, in your life. Why has God blown up your life? You may be asking that question. I don't know. Well, Ezekiel offers a series of four visions, and this is one of those four visions, but I want you to see that's the backdrop. And in this chapter, the ninth chapter, he's focused upon idolatry. The reason God is coming is because God is judging Israel for their idolatry. They had the temple. They played the game of, of religion. But their hearts were far from God. They were hypocritical. They were two-faced. They had no regard for God. And God blew it up. 
So here's the way Ezekiel 9 reads. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. By the way, these are angels. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and they stood beside the bronze altar, one of the furniture pieces in the temple. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So he, he wants you to mark the people who sigh and groan. As they look around the culture, as they look around the context of their lives, and they see evil doing, murder, robbery, evil doing, meddling. You take the ones whose heart groans against that, who hates that, who sighs against that, who wishes it were different. You take those people, he says here, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were, who were before the house and he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain, go out. So they went out and they struck in the city. And while they were striking, I was left alone and I fell upon my face and I cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. Hmm. So what's going on in 1 Peter 4? Well, he's remembering the Ezekiel vision. And he says, there's going to be two kinds of people that God's going to deal with. One are people who are going to do the right thing but their, their lives are going to be touched, tarnished by, affected by suffering. Listen, hypothetically, if God came in and he killed all of these people, no offense, just an illustration, left all, killed all of these people and he left all of these people alive, every one of us would be touched by all of this. The judgment of God affects us all. And there's no way around it. So God will judge and does judge. But in the midst of his judgment, there's two kinds of people. There are those who are his. And there are those who are not. But in the process of executing his judgment on the world. And he does so moment by moment, day after day, week after week, month after month. He's doing it right now. 
God is judging me right now. Not for the sake of my salvation, that's secure, that's safe. But God is judging my heart just like this, Ezekiel 9. You go and, and you find the heart of the men who sigh and groan over the condition of the culture. And you put a mark on their forehead. And you start at my house. What does Peter say is going on in 1 Peter 4? He said, you're either going to be judged because you're one of God's or you're going to be judged because you're not one of God's. But there is no category for no judgment. That category does not exist. Hearkening back to the illustration of marriage, you promise to love your spouse for better or worse. Turns out you're going to get both. Richer or poorer, turns out you're going to get both. Sickness and in health, turns out you're going to get both. You don't know how much of both, but you're going to get both. As a Christian, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer either as a Christian because you're a Christian, because you're a dedicated Christian, or you're going to suffer because you're not a Christian. And the judgment of God is coming. And why is God coming? And why is God starting in his own house? Because God is uber committed to purity. The purity of his people. It turns out God is looking at my heart and he's judging me. He's evaluating me. It turns out I want him to do that. It turns out that's the evidence of his affection for me. That's the evidence of his desire for me, of his good for me. There's a series of verses that will help you think about this. We've got them on the screen here. You don't have to, to turn with me. But Proverbs 27, 21 says, The crucible is for silver. The furnace is for gold. A man is tested by his praise. The, the point of that proverb is that, that God is intending for our lives to be tested. And one of the ways God tests us is that he can give us praise. People can praise us. And then we have to decide what we're going to do with that. Are we going to actually believe that or think that we're more valuable or more important or more significant than somebody who is not praised? There's a test in praise that God intends for us to pass, not fail. Psalm 66.10, for you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. How is silver tried? They turn up the heat underneath it. They boil it. The same with gold, Zechariah 13.9. I will put this third into the fire, refine them as one refined silver, test them as gold is tested. What is God doing in my life? What is God doing in your life? He's turning up the heat. Why is God doing that? So as to test us, so as to purify us, so as to identify what's good and what's not, what's right and what's wrong, what's, what's of God, what's pure. God is committed to purity. In this very letter, 1 Peter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Same word as testing. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is God doing? He's proving the genuineness of my faith. And he's bringing about testing for that purpose. And then these precious words in Romans 5, 3 and 5. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Bible completely rejects the notion that your suffering is evidence of the, the lack of God's love. It's the reverse. Turns out that your suffering as a Christian following Jesus, doing what God has called you to do, is evidence that God does love you, not does not. James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what is God interested in my life? He's interested in my purity, my faithfulness, my devotion. I want to ask you this morning. You probably can't draw a bold line between something you did yesterday and some suffering you're doing today. You know, the easy thing is to say, well, you know, I ate something this morning. I've got a stomachache. Okay. So same process, but think about it this way. Are there things going on in your life that are not the result of somebody else, but they're the result of you? Habits you have, thoughts you cultivate instead of put off, put away, things that you watch, listen to, things that fascinate you, titillate you, things that you think are interesting or whatever. Are these things contributing to your purity, to your holiness, to your righteousness? Well, understand this, friend. If you can draw a line, even if it's a dashed line, not a bold line, just you think that might be contributing to that, how much more does God know the truth of your life, the truth of your heart? How much more does God know? God, you know, God's not worried. Not, God's not limited by our inability to connect the dots. And to see how A results in B. And because A and B exist, the end for you is going to be the judgment of God. God's going to bring discipline. Not because he hates you. Not because he wants to make you miserable. But because he wants your joy to go up. It turns out that those things that you are tolerating, those things that you are pursuing, those things that you are engaging in, those things that are not of God are actually contributing to the absence of joy in your life. You know, every last one of us hurt. Every last one of us find challenges and difficulties. We have fears we have anxieties. We have things that plague us. We have habits and distractions. We have mental failures, if you will, emotional difficulties of various kinds. We all do. We're all trying to cope. We're all trying to medicate. Some are medicating with things of the world and some are medicating with the things of God. It turns out God would have all of us run to him. So what is God doing? 
with judgment. Well, he's bringing about my conformity to Christ. What does God want to do in Ezekiel? He wants to explain to people the seriousness that God holds purity in your life. I don't know what God's doing in your life. I don't know the details of that, neither does anybody else. It's probable that even you struggle with understanding some of what God is doing. But I do know that the Bible tells us that God loves us and that he's at work in my life to drive me to God, which brings me to the third thing. And that is that when suffering comes, run to God. When suffering comes, run to God. You see, that's the point of verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Don't run away from God. Run to God. What has happened in your life? Are you closer to God as a result of the sorrow or suffering or difficulty you've experienced? I mentioned COVID earlier. I'll uh, mention it again. I don't profess to be in tune with the mind of God to such degree that what I'm about to say is the absolute truth. But I can tell you that it has proven to be another in a long line of other mechanisms that God has using to surface in us and his church all across, in this case, the world, of who we are in our relationship to God. God is identified by the means of COVID. He's identified the dross or the problems in our very lives. Because I'm a pastor, I get a lot of pastor junk mail. I get a lot of pastor insights. There's no end to pundits who send me email telling me, well, you know, we have come through COVID and now we know X or now we know Y. And the reality is we don't know X and we don't know Y. But that didn't stop people from selling their wisdom. By the way, I'm not buying. I don't recommend you buy. I hold on to all of that with a loose hand. But I hear this again and again. You know, what's really happened with COVID is God has purged the church. I only know of one church in Mississippi that's bigger today than it was three years ago. That doesn't mean there aren't thousands, but I only know of one. The rest of us are smaller. So the get-out-of-jail card for preachers who want you know, sleep at night is, well, God purged the church. I don't know. I can tell you this. When you turn up the heat in our lives and COVID is a way to turn up the heat you surface all kinds of stuff you surface unkindness impatience unloving behavior un- unkind words you-, you surface judgmentalism you surface a lot of stuff that wasn't terribly ugly I mean wasn't terribly pretty okay We don't have to dwell in our failures. We're not dwelling in our failures. But I'm telling you, friend, God is in the judgment business. He's in the discipline business. He's in the heat business. He's in the suffering business. And what does God want us to do? 
when we find these challenges or these heartaches or these difficulties or these, these things that don't work out quite the way we hoped? Are we to run from God? On the contrary, let us entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. It turns out that no matter what causes my failure, it wasn't God. It turns out that the only antidote for my failure is God. And the only antidote for your failure is to run to God. When judgment begins at the house of God, God intends to put a mark on the forehead of those who are His. Not because they're not going to face hardship, but because in spite of the hardship, they're going to stay on the road to glory. There may be a, a pothole bigger than anything I've ever witnessed in my entire life between me and heaven, but I'm getting to heaven. And you can get to heaven too and know this, that God designs these things for the purpose of separating us from those things that are not right and good and pure and true so that our lives would reflect Him. So I don't know all that God has done in COVID, but I do know one thing. God has reminded every last cotton-picking one of us that we ain't finished yet. And there's a road to righteousness and faithfulness and fidelity and integrity and kindness and goodness and gentleness that some of us have fallen off of. And it's a quick step right back in it. It's called repentance, confession, and get right back on that road following Jesus. And it's that, that way in every area of our life. God uses marriage to crush. God uses child rearing to crush. God uses working along hard people to crush. God uses neighbors who don't mow their grass. God uses drivers who don't drive like they're supposed to. God uses a thousand little things like thorns under your saddle. And he constantly says, Run to me, run to me, run to me. Don't run to sin. Judgment includes the house of God. In fact, it begins at the house of God. Let's get the log out of our own eye while we're trying to pick the speck out of the eye of someone else. Let us understand that God has called us to follow him no matter what. And his discipline and his suffering and his plan, whatever it may be, big or little in my life, your life, is intended to drive us to God. I just want to urge you today, if you're not leaning into God, then you're leaning into something that's not God. And the Bible has plenty to say about the fact that God is not going to put up with that indefinitely. Judgment is a real thing. Susan and I have three children, nine grandchildren. We love them. They're not perfect. And the reason they're not perfect is because they have parents who are not perfect. And we've had a lot of moments, just like every other family, where we've said, thus saith dad, or thus saith mom. And sometimes our children agreed with that. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes our grandchildren, even to this day, still don't agree with that. And we want them to agree with that because we are actually smarter than them. I was with my five-year-old granddaughter yesterday. I love her. But I came away believing that I am much smarter than she is. 
So I'm telling you, friend, if you love your children, if you love your grandchildren, if you love your friends, if you love your neighbors, if you love the people in this church, you're going to be committed to the things of God. You're going to help without being a busybody, a meddler. But you're going to realize that what God is doing is not just about them, the speck in their eye, but it's about you. And the reason you keep seeing what they see or what they do or what they say may tell you a lot about you instead of them. Does that sound pretty convoluted? (laughs) Does that sound pretty complex? Yeah, it turns out it really is. It's really hard to be as smart as God. So in the end, let's stop auditioning for the part. And let's just put our head down and do what we know to do. and Love God and commit our ways to God. And if suffering comes our way for doing the right thing, so be it. Let's lean into God even more. And to God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, I, I'm so grateful for your kindness to me, to these. We gather here this morning. We are uh, mindful, Lord, of, of uh, our need for you and our hope in you. And we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see that you love us and that you're at work even in the hardships of life, even in the heartaches of life, and that you're bringing us safely home. Give us grace to follow and to obey. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.